I've got a long introduction today. Uh, something really important happened this week. Really important. So with the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision um, and the moving away of federal protection over abortion, um, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Because as Christians, we love life. We love life. And we love the little lives in wombs, right? So praise Jesus. This has been something that we've been working toward for a long time. Uh, Christians for 50 years have been moving toward this. Work doesn't stop, okay? Just because uh, there's no longer a federal protection over abortion doesn't mean we can kick back and relax. It means there's that many more lives that Christians are going to have to take care of, advocate for, push into. It's a good thing. It's a huge, huge calling. We can't do it by ourselves. Here's my encouragement for you. Wherever you land on that decision, right, um, before you tweet about it, before you write Facebook posts about it and all that sort of stuff, go talk to Generations Hope. Go talk to Comfort Care. Go talk to people who are involved in helping young mothers and these little babies, right? Because we want to champion them. We want to be for them. So in a little bit, I'm going to thank Jesus um, for this big moment that happened in our nation's history. Um, but before we do that, we're coming to, like, while, while Rick has gone on vacation, I've decided to do a little mini-series on hope. So I'll be preaching over the next three, three weeks. Um, and you ask, why hope? Well, I'll get to that in a little bit, all right? And maybe you're asking, okay, well, how does this tie into our generosity series? Because that's what Rick is teaching on right now. And here's, here's why, okay? Here's how I think it fits in. Because where we fix our hopes determines a lot about how we live. If your hopes are fixed on making yourself safe, making sure you have a large enough bank account, all that sort of stuff, you're not going to be generous. Where your hopes are fixed determines a lot about how you live. Okay? So what we're going to cover this week, we're going to talk about the ancient foundations of hope. Next week we'll talk about the resurrection, how that shifts and changes everything. Okay? And... The week after that, we're going to talk about, okay, that's the big so what question, okay? So this is, this is a, a reality, hope is important, and how should it change our lives? All right, so we're not going to address everything about hope uh, this, this Sunday, but we've got two Sundays coming up. And we're going to do it from the book of First Peter. So if you don't mind turning for, to First Peter, I'm going to go to chapter 1. And today we're going to preach on verses 10 through 12, but I'd like to start reading in verse 3. Starting in verse 3, and we'll read all the way through verse 12. If you are able and willing, please stand out of respect as we read the Word of God. 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Here's the key word, to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by the various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's a true word, the living God. Gives it to you because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, um, would you be at work in this season? Father, I think all of us can all use growth and hope. Father, even as you have answered the prayers and the hard work of Christians throughout 50 years to roll back Roe v. Wade, um, and we praise you for that. We have yet again another proof that you are the God of hope, that you are working, and we have no reason to ever doubt that. So Father, I pray uh, right now, would you meet us All of this is nothing. None of this means anything unless, Father, you work through it. Unless you send your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, to open our eyes to see Jesus. And that's what we ask for. We want to see him. We want to love him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please grab a seat. All right, so we're going to work through verses 10 through 12. um, Because this... This passage is about the ancient foundations, and I kind of want to start off with the foundations. Our, our uh, sermon outline is really simple. If you're an outline taker, we got two points, the problem and the promises. Here's why, I'm, here's why I thought we should, pre, uh, we should do this series. Um, I love y'all. I love, I love Holy Cross. I love our church. And I think we live in a really tough time. A time that tests, tests our courage, tests how we view the future. So let me ask you, what is your relationship with the future? It's <laughs> a weird question. But what do you, when you think of what is coming down the road, whether it's globally, nationally, locally, maybe just even individually, when you think of that, how do you feel? What's your gut response? See, I think for a lot of us, we probably just had a little stab of anxiety, a little sense of fear. What I've noticed, um, because I I talk a lot about anxiety (laughs) whenever it's my turn to preach, I've noticed it resonates. And here's why I think so. Because we have a problem. I'm not saying our church has a problem. I think our world has a problem particularly our, our nation. We, we live in an anxious context. So let's talk a little bit about our context. We live in a world that is working overtime to scare us, to make us fearful about the future. 
again, there, there are reasons for that, but you know, you're more likely to click on a news article if it's like talking about something that terrifies you. Oh my goodness, what's coming next? You know, I'm trying to control this. So there, there's a tactic behind it, right? And I'm not saying that there's nothing to be afraid of. There is. Like I think the last several years have shown like there's a lot to be afraid of. Um, but whatever the circumstances, fear is not what we were made for. It's not what we're called to. Do you know that hope is a cardinal mark of being a Christian. So in the early church, when they were thinking through, okay, what three traits define Christians? The Apostle Paul started this off. If you'll, you'll notice it if you've never noticed it before. There are three things. Faith, hope, and love. It's in the 1 Corinthians 3 passage, right? Love, love faith, hope. Um, those are the three cardinal marks of a Christian. And, I mean, we're all good with faith, right? We're all trying to grow deeper in our faith. We're trying to get stronger in our faith. We're, we're seeking to uh, place our faith more in Jesus. We're pretty, like, we're working on the love piece, right? We all recognize we need to love one another. We need to love our world. We need to love the Lord, all those things. How often do you hear about Christians saying, man, I'm really working on my hope. <laughs> but it's part, it's part of the three. If faith is essential to being a Christian... And, and love is essential to being a Christian, so is hope. These three things are what mark you out. So we're going to talk about hope. Here's the thing. Um, when it comes to hope, I think a lot of us, uh, we fall into counterfeits. Maybe we don't quite understand what hope is. Um, so rather than cling to hope, which is hard, we do these other things. We do activism. That's really popular in our culture, right? Like, we don't like where things are going, so we're going to get involved and we're going to change things, right? There's nothing wrong with that except it's not hope. It's control, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you you know someone like this. Uh, naive optimism. Just somebody who's like, you know what? It's going to work out. I know things are bad, but it's going to be fine. But how do you know? Right? You have to have a basis for that declaration. Otherwise, anybody who's thinking is going to be terrified anyway. It's like, you need to tell me how you know it's going to be fine. Right? Here's where I think most of us end up. We just numb out. Most of us, we, we're not going to do the activism thing. We're not going to do the optimism thing. We're just not going to think about it. I'm not going to deal with, with what's coming down the pipeline. I'm going to keep my head in the sand. I'm just going to do my thing, right? And then where I think the bulk of us lie outside of that is jaded pessimism. But we don't call it that. We call it realism, right? I mean, that's, what do you expect? That's how the world works. Just don't get your hopes up. I get that because I'm in that category. So what is hope? If you look at it in the uh, Bible dictionaries and so forth, they say it's a happy anticipation of good, an active anticipation of God's blessing and so forth like that. So here's what hope is. It's trusting God to come through on his promises. It's faith in the God who controls the future. It's, it's future faith based on past faithfulness. And we're going to expand on that in a little bit. 
And I get that hope is hard, right? It's hard for a theological reason. One, we were born to be dreamers. We really were. Like, God made us to enter into a glorious world where, like, everything is working the way it's supposed to. And, but it's not. We live in a dream-crushing world. If you have enough of those experiences, oh, man, it's so easy to turn to that jade of pessimism, right? Because, again, you're trying to protect yourself. You don't want to let yourself, you don't want your hopes to be dashed. And there's a practical reason for, our, for why it's so hard to hope, to be hopeful. It's because, frankly, um, we are ignorant of history. We tend to think ours is either the best of times or the worst of times. You know, there's no space in between. Um, history will show you ours ain't the best of times. It's also not the worst of times, all right? But even more importantly, we're ignorant of very often, at least in terms of living this out, we're ignorant of how God has faithfully dealt with his people in the past. If we really believe that, it would shape how we live. We'll talk a lot more about that in three weeks, or in two weeks. All right, so that's our context. Let's look at Peter's context. Peter, if you don't know the man, uh, he is a famous apostle, a fisherman who Jesus saw hanging out with his boats. Jesus loved him, called him. Peter joined Jesus and is one of the most beloved apostles because he's got a big old foot and he loves to stick it in his mouth all the time. Um, so he, Jesus transformed him and he, he's this apostle now and now he's writing to, who are the people that he's writing to? Uh, Christians in northern like modern-day Turkey, okay? Um, and they were facing hard times. Now, when we think persecution, we often think like, oh, Christians in the Colosseum getting slaughtered. It wasn't to that extent just yet. Something a lot more familiar. They were feeling political oppression. You know, judges making decisions against them because they were Christians, ruling against you because of your faith, having your property seized or being imprisoned because you were considered a traitor who didn't fit the Roman ideal. You're not, a, you're not an ideal citizen. They were also suffering loss of friends and family because of what they believed. Do you know what that's like? To lose relationships that mean something to you because suddenly you're weird. They were suffering economic hardship because people wouldn't deal with them in the marketplaces, all that sort of stuff. Didn't go along with the ideas and values and worship of the day. Felt like outsiders, out of step with the surrounding culture because of their allegiance to a different king, King Jesus. And they were faced with discouragement at the shape of things around them. Like, is this actually, where is this all headed? Does that sound familiar? It's a lot like us, right? So these words are for you. Because see, we're not so very different from the Christians during this time. We share the same problem. Fearfulness and discouragement about the future. So what does Peter do? He encourages his friends by grounding them in the hope of the gospel. By reminding them of the hope of the good news that had once changed their lives. And how does he do that? He points to God's promises. So that's what we're going to talk about next. God's promises. 
All right, so this is where we're actually going to get into the text a little bit. Um, if, if, if you've been reading through this and you're like, well, can't wait, there's, the word promise isn't actually in this passage. Did you notice that? But here's the deal. Um, this whole section of scripture is full of these Old Testament overtones, these, these uh, hearkening backs to God's promises that he's made throughout the centuries. Uh, just because it doesn't contain the word promises doesn't mean they're not there. And we'll talk more about that next week uh, when we're un- unpacking verses 3 through 5. Um, but Peter's talking about the prophets, and prophets back, back in the day, um, we tend to think of prophets, I mean, Rick always says this, right? We tend to think of prophets as like fortune tellers and saying, hey, here's what's, here's what's in your future. But prophets, more often than not, like the number one thing they did, they were preachers. And what they preached about was sermons based on God's promises and saying, hey, here, this is who God is. This is who he says he is. This is what he says he's doing. We got to believe and act like it, even when it doesn't seem like, uh, like the circumstances are matching up. And one of the greatest themes that they preached about, verse 10, was salvation. The fact that God was restoring all things. The God who would remake human souls wasn't just going to like take them out to heaven. He was remaking human souls and restoring a broken world. Salvation is a very big concept in scripture. And how is he going to do that? Verse 11, through the Christ, the sufferings, and the subsequent glories of the Christ. Christ is a Greek term. I mean, you all know this, uh, but it bears repeating. Christ is a Greek term for Messiah, which is literally someone who's anointed. It's kind of what we did with Brandon today. Except we didn't do it with oil, which is what they did back in the day. We set him apart. We anointed him for Jesus. That's what Christ was. Whenever he was a priestly, kingly figure set apart to do the work of the Lord. A priest, someone who would restore broken relationships between God and man, who would remove the guilt and shame of our wrongdoing and take the suffering that we had brought into the world on himself. That's what a priest was supposed to do. The other anointed person, the other Christ figure, was a king, a king who would be the ideal citizen, a a model Israelite who would show all the rest of the people, this is what it looks like to be a follower of God. And not just that, but a king who would enact what is right and banish what is wrong. Boy, don't we want that. Someone who would champion God's people and rescue them from the world and their enemies. And who would extend God's glory and and God's name and his fame over the entire earth, right? So that, that's the sufferings of the Christ, mentioned in verse 10. Those are the glories of the Christ. And there were a lot of Christs that came in the Old Testament, a lot of people who were anointed, and none of them measured up. They always left God's people, life are lit, it needs to be more. We need someone who can fulfill this perfectly. We have that. That's Peter's point here. This is an ancient set of promises. These promises that God made started in the very beginning in the garden. When we broke everything. When we turned our backs on God and rebelled against God, God still moved toward us and said, hey, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to send a priest 
who can remove the sin, who will carry this on himself, who will restore relationship. I'm going to send a king who will rule, who will be the ideal uh, Israelite, the, the person who models perfect relationship between God and man, the one who will banish your enemies, who will, who will take care of you. God expanded on those promises through his prophets throughout the years. And it's in the soil of those promises that God planted the seed of human hope. And God's people yearned for that for centuries, waiting, trying to figure out how is God going to do this? How is he going to pull this out? They felt like very often they were at moments where it felt this could be it. King Solomon reigns and it's a glorious reign full of gold and glitter. This could be it. And then he turns against God. Had priestly figures who kept the word and like restored the worship of God. And then then they died and things went off the rails again. It's never quite there. And so God's people kept hoping. I mean, goodness, Peter says, even the angels longed to look into this stuff. How, what's God going to do? How is he going to pull this off? Don't miss that. The bulk of human history has been spent wondering, how is God going to bring this about? And you know. You know the story. That's what Peter tells his audience, right? He tells his, the ones who are reading it. They're serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced. You know the good news. In fact, you know it so well that maybe it feels a little boring, but this good news spread like wildfire through the ancient world and it continues to spread to this day. That God himself would become a human to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve to die, to roll back the curse that we brought on ourselves and on our world. And he did this by overcoming death. We're going to talk about that more next week. All right. So those are God's promises that he's made good on. Why does it matter? How does this affect your life? Because, and again, like what do the promises have to do with hope, right? But God's promises are his answer to not only life's biggest questions, but they're his guarantees that the story is going to turn out God's way. No matter, no matter the circumstances, God says, this is going to happen. Trust me. Those are God's promises. I will make this come about. And I've got a whole list of questions here that are like, or uh, life's biggest questions. Like, where does all this come from? Is God truly invested? Which, which God is the real one? Like, these are all things that this book deals with over the course of like thousands of years of history. But the real question, I think for us, right, is this one. Can God be trusted? He's made these promises. Can he actually be trusted? See, God's promises matter because they prove the trustworthiness of God. And again, that's the advantage that we have living on this side of history that the prophets and, and God's people before didn't have. We've seen how God has made good on his promises. Because the best indicator of future performance is past performance. 
I mean, our whole, our whole existence as human beings is kind of built on that. It's the whole foundation of like the scientific method and so forth. Huh, I wonder what would happen if we did this. Hmm, would it keep doing that? You know? Oh, it keeps consistently doing this, so I, I bet you the next time I try it, it'll keep doing this. Right? Best indicator of future performance is past performance. And God has a flawless track record. Flawless. He has come through every single time. He has done every single thing that he said he would do. You want to know why people, I mean, if you're not a big fan of the Bible, you want to know why people still read this? <laughs> this, is, this is a book that's thousands of years old. And there are plenty of thousand-year-old books out there that no one's still reading. They're collecting dust somewhere in a museum. But we do this because it works. Because we see promises in here that continue to bear fruit in our lives. You want to know why our faith continues when so many faiths have died out? Where is Marduk? Where is Baal? Where are the gods of the Babylonians? Where is Ra, head of the pantheon of Egypt? Where is Zeus and Jupiter and all these? God relegated them to the dustbin of history, proving that the Lord is God. He's continued to be worshipped to this day. Because God is faithful. He makes promises, he stands by them, and the clearest answer to all of his promises, according to Peter, is Jesus. All right, so here's the practical bit, right? Um, I'm not telling you just believe harder. I'm not saying what's going to fix your hope is if, if you just believed what's in here, <laughs> right? Because the, the problem is, it's not that um, you need more information. It's not that I need to stand up here and like read a list to you of how God has been faithful. It's a heart problem. Because we're hardwired to be skeptical of God. To think, oh yeah? Whenever he says his promises. To imagine that he's untrustworthy. And even though we might not actually say that, right? Our actions betray it. So some diagnosis questions. Diagnostic questions. What makes you afraid of living into the radical generosity that Rick's been calling us to. I think because in the end, we're not sure that God's going to make good on his promises to take care of us. Right? We're not sure that he's trustworthy. What has you fearful about the future and turning your back on hope? Finding refuge in jaded cynicism pessimism or else just not thinking about it again right we're not we're not sure that god can be trusted fundamentally we aren't sure we can trust god and that's the lie that satan whispered very first lie way back in the beginning did god really say he's holding out on you can you really trust this guy and it's the lie that lodged deep in the heart of every human being since then. And the answer to it isn't more information. The answer to it is seeing how infinitely trustworthy God is. It's relationship. It's moving into a relationship with the Lord and saying, okay, 
you say this is who you are, it's going to involve a little bit of risk, right? I trust you. Did you guys ever do trust falls? <laughs> I think they're the stupidest thing in the world. Um, but it's a good metaphor for a relationship, right? All right, go on down. I'll catch you. <laughs> and if you're like me, uh, I was the sibling who was like, go on down. I'll catch you. <laughs> it, takes, it takes risk. Relationship takes risk. Trust takes risk. No matter how much you know about the Lord, it's going to risk a little bit on your end. But you know what? God is always there. He's not going to step aside. You know why? Because we have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history of people falling back into the abyss and finding God was there. Every single time. And you're not going to be the outlier. Because future performance is best measured by past performance, right? His promises will never fall to the ground. He is infinitely trustworthy. So you can have hope. You can have this future faith based on the ancient foundations of God's faithfulness. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I... It's so easy for us to hear things, but then will it really affect our lives? Will it change our hearts? That's up to you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch us, that you would move into into our hearts and and change that attitude that we have that is skeptical of you. Father, cause us to fall back on you trustingly, knowing that you will be there. And therefore, we can have hope. Would you make us a hopeful people, Lord? Because that's what glorifies you. People who have this confidence and unshakable assurance in their God and what he's doing. So would you move? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.